0: power in the pressure as they seem are not the results of massive You may wish to adjust the dial you are currently tuned into the wrong station. The shrink's cane echoed down long, grey hallways, resounding from the square edges of grey fluorescent lights. He liked the sound and feel of the stick, its weight in the palm of his hand. He liked the air of mystery and easy authority he felt he had while carrying it. He was a character. He was decidedly a character, for he had made himself into one. At a certain point in his life, he had given up on being the kind of man he'd want to be, and so he'd settled on being a man of prestige, power, and eccentricity. He wore purplish, dark glasses, even indoors, even at night, even indoors at night in a dim-lit building like this one. He dressed in all black, always, and his white hair flowed back from underneath his black fedora. Though his goatee was also white, he wasn't quite as old as he seemed. The truth was, when he looked at his bathroom mirror reflection in the morning's gold glow, he thought of himself as a ruined man, worthless and despoiled. He hated himself in those moments. He did hate himself. But when he assumed the black clothes and gently psychedelic glasses, when he lifted up his cane-slash-walking stick with its ebon, pseudo-Africana carvings, he felt like he left himself behind. His name dissipated like morning mist, and he became the Shrink, an avatar of learning, psychological, and esoteric, a man with secret knowledge that made him... Interesting and strong, a man invested with a whiff of power, the power of the state. And then he found that he liked himself just fine. T- 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 the echoes of his stick died away. He had arrived in front of a steel door inset with a small, shatterproof glass panel. Because of his position, the guards on either side hastened to open the door for him. When he was himself, alone, at home, there were so many basic tasks he had to struggle with. It might take him forty seconds to shove aside an awkward door. But out here, where he was, the shrink, the power of the state enrobed him, and spirits jumped to his command. Open Sesame. He glided through the open door. Within, gray and dim-lit concrete walls pressed in around a stainless steel picnic table, where a man sat hunched and handcuffed to his seat. This man was small, and his skin was darker than the Shrink's, and he had several days' growth of beard. His orange jumpsuit was almost washed out to gray. The Shrink took a seat across from him with the usual difficulty, tossing down a manila file folder as he did. Mr. Carter, he began, searching through pockets for his vape pen. Do you know who I am and why I'm here? You're the shrink. Carter didn't make eye contact. You're here because the judge wants to know if I'm crazy. At least he was lucid, the shrink thought. It would make for a pleasant change of pace. He positioned himself so his back was to the CCTV in the upper corner and pulled on the vape. ''We don't use the word crazy in my profession, Mr. Carter,'' said the shrink. ''Except, uh, behind closed doors, of course. No, I'm here to hear your side of the story. Why don't you tell me what happened?'' Carter shot him a sidelong glance. ''You won't believe me.'' ''Don't be so sure,'' the shrink smiled. ''I've seen a lot of things through these purple lenses.'' Tell me. At least that way your story gets out. Carter hesitated. He met the shrink's gaze for the first time, and then quickly looked away. Well, I think I've got it all figured out, Carter said. I think it all goes back to Dorney. Elias Dorney, said the shrink, flipping through the file folder. An associate from your Vancouver days, deceased four years, presumed murdered. "'Yeah,' said Carter. "'I was the one who found him. "'I'm sorry to hear that.' "'Carter closed his eyes and shivered. "'The Shrink could well imagine what he was remembering. "'He had been to places like the one where Carter had been living at the time of Dorney's death. "'Slum towers that should have been condemned decades earlier. "'Bad places. Neglected places. "'Places people ended up when City Hall would rather they just quickly die.' Places with naked, dead fluorescents flicking in the hallway, where the garbage was never collected, no matter how neatly tied the bags were. Where the rats and roaches ran along the floorboards, no matter how clean you tried to keep your home. Places that would always smell, until the cranes came and tore them down and raised new condos in their place. And what is it about Mr. Dorney's death that you think relates to your current situation? Well... Carter shivered. His eyes kept flicking up to the shrinks for reassurance, and then away from the steady purple gaze. Well, I think they killed him. They drove him crazy first, because that's what they do. What they tried to do to me. Who's they, Mr. Carter? Well, I don't know if it's them exactly, or if they're working for someone else, you know. But I think they must be the ones who did it. The actual killing. And then they came after me because I was the one who found Dorney after what they did to him and because I can see them. You know? No one else seems to be able to see them. See who, Mr. Carter? The the little guys. The little men. Little men? Carter hesitated. He'd been caught up in the excitement of finally being able to tell his story, but now remembered that the person he was talking to was a stranger. He looked down. He started to close up. The shrink took swift action. Tell me about these little men, Mr. Carter. You you won't believe me. I'm not here to make judgments. With, With respect, Doctor, isn't that exactly what you're here to do? Well... Carter had a point. "'I'll keep an open mind,' said the shrink. It was a lie made smooth with practice. After a short pause, Carter bought it. "'They're... little. About this high,' he began, holding one hand about a foot and a half off the floor. "'You only ever see them out of the corner of your eye.' Even if they're standing right in front of you, they're black and whitish. Or, or maybe just dark and shiny. Like I said, it's hard to see them, even if you're able to see them. And most people can't see them. But then the thing I really don't like about the little men is their heads. Their heads are too thin. Like. He pressed his hands together, miming compression. And then because of their. because of how they are, like dark and light and dancing all the time, because their whole bodies almost flicker, it's like their heads are almost candles. Candles burning with black fire. I see, said the shrink. In spite of himself, he felt a little shiver pass through him. Are there. any here now? No said Carter but by the way his eyes darted to the dark corners of the room the shrink could tell that he lied and so how did these little fellows try and drive you crazy Mr. Carter well they're the ones who brought the centipede the centipede yeah the one that got into the house the house that you shared with Miss Chermack and her son yeah the one that I shared with with Natalia and Jason And when, the shrink continued, treading gently, did you first encounter the centipede? Carter gave him the date. It was exactly four years to the day after Elias Dorney's death. At first I thought it was just uh, something normal moving in the tree, Carter said. Go on. But the tree was right outside the house. Its branches went right up to... To... To Jason's window. And I realized that whatever was in the tree was dangerous. Right? It could get into the window and and get at... At Jason. It had the power to ruin everything. Right? As in, everything you'd built since moving away from Vancouver. Your new life. Your relationship with Miss Chermak and her son. Yes. And you'd do anything to protect that. To protect them. "'Yes,' Carter whispered again. His eyes were wide and terrified. The shrink could see him reliving a whole cascade of terrible emotions over and over again. In spite of himself, the shrink enjoyed seeing him suffer. He was like sitting warm and safe inside, watching someone battle their way down the street in a hurricane.' And so you cut down the tree, said the shrink, flipping past the neighbor's reports in his file. He took a pull from his vape. He couldn't remember what flavor it was supposed to be. Something sugary, fruity. The cartridge had been purple. Yeah, the tree the centipede was living in. I I cut it down and then I put chemicals so it couldn't grow back. But that didn't end up being enough. Well... "'No, because... because the centipede got in. "'They let it in. "'They being the little men,' said the shrink. "'Carter nodded. "'The little men that weren't in this room right now.' "'The shrink couldn't keep himself from glancing into the gloomy corners, "'but the shadows there were empty. "'Nothing danced. "'That's right,' said Carter.' That was the first time that I saw them, since since, since the, the first time I saw them since the night they got Dorney, and, and that's when I realized they'd found me. They tracked me down and found me, and that's when I realized how much trouble I was in, that this centipede... He shook his head somewhat violently, not able to follow the thought where it wanted to go. "'Tell me what you did next, Mr. Carter.' "'Well, I, I, I searched the household, but I couldn't find anything.' Nothing in the basement, nothing in the cupboards, nothing anywhere else. And that scared me, because the centipede was big. It was bigger than my arm. It was like a vacuum cleaner hose. Its legs were like like the big nails you use for roofing. It shouldn't have been able to hide. And so you decided to cut open the walls. I had to, Carter shouted. It was in there. They had let it in there, and it was going to hurt them. There was nothing in the walls. And, and I realized it had to be coming in and out of the house. They had to be letting it in and out. The louder that Carter became, the softer the shrink spoke. And that is when you began to seal up the house. Yes. A light was in Carter's eyes. His face was shining with sweat, but now he met the shrink's gaze. Defiant, filled with a kind of righteousness... I had to keep it out. You understand? It wasn't about me, or even Nat. The centipede was trying to get to Jason. Right? It was trying to get him. Because they knew it was the best way to get to me, you understand? And they knew he couldn't protect himself. So, you know what the centipede was trying to do? What it was trying to do, it was trying to get into his room at night, okay? So that it could lay eggs. You know, under... "'His skin. It want to get in at night "'and crawl all over and lay eggs under his skin, okay? "'That's what they wanted, you understand? "'That's what they wanted to do to him, "'to use him as, as a hatchery for more of those things "'so they could do it all over again, right? do it to more people. "'Do it to more of us. "'You understand?' Carter's eyes were locked on the shrinks by now, "'furious and tense, no longer lost, but proud, blazing, and assured. One of the gray bulbs burned out above. The light in the room dimmed, and the shrink's eyes were inscrutable behind their purple lenses. And then, he said, you found the centipede. I, I kept hearing it, Carter said. As suddenly, as he had blazed up, he was faltering now. He was getting close to the part of the story that he couldn't escape. I... I checked the house a hundred times, but there was no way in or out. Everything was hammered up, taped up, sealed up tight. You could only get in and out the front door, and we were all stripped each time we came in, to make sure we weren't carrying any eggs. So there was no way for the centipede to get in and out, but... I kept hearing it. I see, said the shrink. So you concluded it had to be hiding somewhere, after all. Yes. And there was only one way for you to find it. Yes. You had to smoke it out, somehow. I... Yes. I had to smoke it out, somehow. The shrink closed his eyes. It was hard for him not to imagine the scene. he had worked enough cases like this before. He had seen enough of the photos. In his mind's eye, he witnessed Natalia Chermak waking to the smell of smoke. He saw her rushing to the bedside of her five-year-old, saw her beating against the glass of his bedroom window. But the window was nailed shut, cocked shut and taped shut. Nowhere for the smoke to go. Nowhere for the mother and child. And he could see Carter's face turn to horror and despair as the fire got out of control. Could see him running through the burning building, crashing into furniture as he called for them by name. Crawling under smoke to the top of the stairs. Finding them. Finding them still. Breaking the glass with his own body in a vain attempt to save the boy he'd killed. Falling two stories with the child's body in his arms, and then the neighbors, standing on their lawns, looking on in silence as he knelt before a burning home, weeping as he tried to revive that pale bundle in the yellow grass, and sirens growing closer in the distance. And then, in spite of himself, he imagined small and shadowed figures. Each no more than eighteen inches tall, with heads like black candles, dancing in a ring around him. Unseen by any of the neighbors, their dance for Carter's eyes alone. The shrink leaned back. He opened his eyes. Carter was still looking at him, but now the flame had gone out fully, and Carter quickly turned away from that flat and purple gaze. A long silence fell between them, only the dull white noise of distant fans and generators. They tell me you tried to save Jason, Mr. Carter, said the shrink at last, and at great personal risk. I tried to save him. I tried to save him. They also tell me you kept the paramedics from getting to him, that you were scratching at his skin and they couldn't get you away from him. It, it had gotten to him already. The centipede, I, I, I don't know how. He, he was full of eggs. It had laid oh, all its eggs underneath his skin. I was too late. I couldn't get them out. I tried so hard. The shrink closed up his file. The last piece of paper was a black-and-white copy of a photograph showing post-mortem injuries on Jason Chermack's body. The image was quite shocking, even to him. He took a long, final pull on his vape pen and then began the lengthy process of getting up. Well, Mr. Carter, it seems to me that you've been very brave. Wait, you're going? Oh, yes, I have all I need. Did you want to know if I have answers for you, yes? The shrink looked down upon him, half silhouetted by the gray dim light of institution. Carter didn't answer, except with an imploring stare, a stare begging for the shrink to feel their shared humanity, their common confusion, weariness, and fear. But the shrink's white face betrayed no such emotion. Mr. Carter... You've been seeing what we sometimes refer to as the Dweeves, these little men of yours. They're a not uncommon hallucination resulting from stimulant psychosis. Carter stared up at him, uncomprehending. The toxicology says that you and Miss Trimac were both heavy users of methamphetamine and that you were in the middle of an extended binge when the fire took place. No, but that's that's not true. Doctor, you have to believe me. I I, I don't I don't even drink. I, I only smoke pot. The shrink shrugged. The crown disagrees, he said. And you have a history. But I've been clean since Vancouver. I, I've never I haven't Clean? You just told me you were a routine cannabis user. but, but, but I promise Carter said. And even if I was, Nat would never. She never used hard drugs. I wish I could believe you, said the shrink, though in truth he had no such wish. But even if I did, it wouldn't make a difference. Even if I believed in little men like dancing candles, would the crown care? He shrugged, gesturing to the colorless walls, the dim, fading gray fluorescent light. This building costs $350 million to construct, Mr. Carter. Someone has to be locked inside. So maybe we should thank these dweefs of yours, hmm? Honor them as public servants, offer them a spot atop the sunshine list. No? A joke, Mr. Carter, nothing more. You'll get it eventually, I'm sure. After all, you'll have plenty of time to think it over. With that... He rapped at the door, and, like magic, it opened for him. He swept out, not sparing a glance for the guards, and soared down the halls with a tapping of his cane. Though he had taken a certain righteous pleasure in twisting the knife with his parting words, he didn't blame Carter for the Chermac's deaths. Not really. So why, then, did it make him feel so right and good? And why did it give him such pleasure to stride the white corridors of Toronto South Detention Center, past the visitation screens, where video conference brought the inmates the closest they could come to contact with the ones they loved, past the so-called fresh air yards, which were nothing but little bleak rooms with a lonely basketball hoop bolted to the wall, and which were the closest that inmates could come to contact with an open sky? Why? That Carter could be sealed up in a place like this without yet having been convicted of anything. Why did that give him such a little thrill? Maybe it was because he was protected. He was mantled in the state. Places like this were for people like the one he saw in his mirror. But he had made himself a shrink. They returned, his phone in particulars at the gate and then he tapped-tapped his way through the empty parking lot. His car was expensive and black. Its windows had a purplish tint. The doors even opened for him at a button's push, like magic. Inside, he sat for a moment with his hands on the steering wheel and gazed into the rearview mirror. The shadows of the back seat were still and dark. Are you there? he asked. No sound answered him. He reached beneath the seat and came up with a little decorated box. From inside he produced a bag of powder and a small corroded silver spoon. One spoon per nostril and it felt like coming home. The old euphoria filled him. And he smiled to see the little figures dancing on the back seat. Half men, insubstantial, dancing and burning like little black candles. Tell me something, he asked. Are you real? They danced and danced in response. My little friends, I think you are. But why him? Why, out of everyone, did you choose to do it to him? They only danced. They danced and danced in utter silence. But the shrink just laughed and put his car in gear. Though they hadn't spoken, he thought he had his answer now. He knew the real reason and flushed as he was with serotonin. It didn't bother him at all. They did it because they loved to do it. What other reason could there be? Gray fluorescents didn't make themselves. Someone made these things the way they were because they liked it. And that was why they danced. And that was why he loved to watch them dance. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, The Dweefs, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Nate Tila and R. Clark for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elon Citrin, and arranged for the Viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.